Welcome to episode four of Society 2.0. Today, we're going to have an interesting discussion about how we might democratize health with modern technology. So let's get started. I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sharia Sanyal, CEO of Think Biosolution, Forbes correspondent and TEDx speaker. Welcome, doctor. Hey, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great, too. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on. Once I saw your TEDx talk about your product, and the most compelling part for me was your grandmother's story and how, as a young guy, you had to take her to a clinic, and it was kind of an overwhelming experience, and how that experience drove you to reimagine healthcare and mobile devices. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey from that time with your grandmother to where you are today? Yeah, it has been quite a number of years since that happened, but I can still kind of recall it as if it happened yesterday. So I was always quite innovative and I was always tinkering with things. I knew that I was probably going to build a career as an engineer or as a scientist, you know. But that time, one time when I was visiting my grandma and I had to take her to the hospital, and I've never been to a hospital. You'd imagine that a hospital is something that it's right there, kind of close to your house and everyone has gone to, but it's one of those places that you know about, you've read a lot about, but you've probably never gone to because you, no one was seriously ill in your family that you had to do that. But once I went there, I was completely mesmerized by the lack of technology or but the lack of a system, so as to say. And it was not that the care professionals didn't care. They did care about their patients. It was just that it was a whole lot of chaos. And what really came to my mind at that point as a student is how can technology help change this for the better? Now, as I grew up and I traveled, I was very fortunate to study in Europe and US, and I grew up in Asia, so I have quite a mixed understanding of how these things work. I probably realized that that one hospital was probably on the very bad end of the spectrum as far as hospitals go. And since then, and since the last 10 years, things have evolved quite a lot. And at least in the West, with very strict regulations pertaining to how a hospital can run, this means that people have certain basic levels of care guaranteed. But even then, when I go nowadays to hospitals and I'm working with a lot of doctors now, I still think technology can help make it better. And it could be a wide variety of technology. And some of the technology, which is kind of very widely accepted now, like electronic health record, which is not there 10 years ago, to be honest, back in India, but it's now quite common to have a EHR system built into any hospitals that you go to. It's quite nice. And I think these are the first steps of how healthcare is going to change. Uh, At the moment, I think healthcare is going through an exciting change because I believe even a few decades ago or so, healthcare was purely run by a very hierarchical system where doctors, where the experts controlled the decision-making processes. Now, on the other hand, because of technology, in addition to the doctors still holding quite an important place, chief innovation officers, caregivers like nurses, everybody has a say in the care pathway, which I think is the most important thing. But one of the things that one has to be really careful about, like we all know, right, that when as a species we could control fusion, we had access to infinite number of energy, but we went ahead and built bombs with it. So similarly, you have to be careful when you have a powerful technology like the technology that have been built today by the pharmaceutical and the medical device industry. You have to be very careful how you regulate it to ensure that the end user, the consumer, derives the maximum value.
value out of it and it does not become an atom bomb from the point of view that it's not in the hands of some very powerful corporation only who is charging tons and tons of money. It has to be democratized. And that's where I think technology would have the biggest impact in healthcare is in democratizing care pathways for the average consumer. Yeah, and that's interesting. I actually had a note to myself to ask you, do you see or how do you envision mobile devices? And I want to get into a little bit about how your product works and how you use the camera to help do some of the diagnostics for healthcare. But I'm interested in how that you envision the using the mobile devices to democratize healthcare, or as you coined a little bit of a phrase, maybe you didn't coin it, but it, I liked how you said in your talk, sick care versus well care, and using the mobile devices and specifically your technology to focus on the well care part. Oh, I'm glad you asked this question to me, Bob. I think that the phone is kind of a device more, which is kind of ubiquitous in 2018 right now. And it's one piece of device. If you think about a couple of generations back, maybe let's go to the early 2000s, right? So the way we live, our houses haven't changed in how they look. Our living conditions haven't changed that much. We still live in kind of similar looking houses. We drive similar looking cars, right? What has changed fundamentally from a technology point of view is our handheld device, a device that can help you communicate, a device that can help you read, the device that can help you consume news, and it's all one device, your smartphone. So obviously, such a ubiquitous device would have an impact on everything, and smartphones have revolutionized almost everything you can think of. Uh, Take media, for example, or how people consume news or take, for example, how people order food or book holidays or call a cab. So, of course, this is going to make a similar impact in healthcare and it's going to revolutionize it. But the thing is, whereas most smartphones have already revolutionized travel, leisure, information-related industry, in healthcare, because of the regulatory barriers, it's still not as ubiquitous as it is in other industries. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because when you called Uber maybe 10 years ago, the calls dropped and you missed a driver, which is okay for Uber because you'd wait for 10 more minutes to go to the airport. But if your health information got dropped when you had a heart attack and your doctor did not get it, that would be terrible. So there is a lag in time of how new technologies is incorporated in the health space, but that's good. Now, referring back to your mention of my idea of how smartphones would change healthcare, back in the days, about 10 years ago, when I first started doubling with technology, our idea was to build technologies as a peripheral of a smartphone or use, like, for example, the smartphone camera itself to measure medical data. It could be something like the heart rate, something like stress, so on, and movement, so on and so forth. However, as the company and as I myself evolved, we kind of realized that from a regular point of view, if the same device is being used for multiple functionalities, it kind of compromises on things like data security. It also compromises on battery life and a lot of things, right? For example, if it's a device that can pick up stroke and you're consuming YouTube videos on the same device, and maybe last night you watched a lot of YouTube videos in the morning when you're actually having the stroke, there's no battery left in the device. Mm, that's a good point. So decoupling the hardware from the smartphone could be quite a good idea. And this is why our company, Think by is now building hardware, software, and analytics solutions, where we still use a phone to collect the data from the wearable device, but the wearable device is a separate hardware that you wear on your chest that measures biometric parameters like heart rate, 
factor variability, respiratory rate, blood oxygen saturation, movement, temperature, and location. This information is then sent to a smartphone or a Bluetooth hub and then sent to a HIPAA-compliant cloud, which is compatible with HL7 or APIC. And this information is then viewed by a smart dashboard, either by a doctor or a coach or by the patient or the consumer themselves. And we actually view ourselves as an original device manufacturer, building privately labeled wearable device platforms for other telehealth companies. So we're a business-to-business company building customized software, hardware, and analytics for telehealth and traditional healthcare providers. So one of the key things you said there for me is that you're gathering the data and you're storing the data, but do you see at some point that you can make the data more anonymous, maybe share using some form of blockchain care system where it can be shared internationally with other institutions so they can basically improve their diagnostic capabilities or even start to see patterns through big data analysis or deep learning I will address this question in two parts, right? Before I directly answer your question about my views on blockchain, and these are my and my views only and nothing to do with the company, I'd like to address another interesting service that we provide with our devices is real-time AI-powered insights. So our device, for example, can tell an user by combining the biometric and movement information how much or how fast they should exercise to build endurance, reduce fat. Our devices can also pick up physiological stress. It can do an exercise stress test to tell you about your cardiac health. It can tell when you're going to fall down, or if you fall down, it can tell your doctor what triggered the event. Was it a biometric or a movement disorder that led to the fall? So we have built analytics already into the device. And this is relevant to your question because while building this AI-powered device, we're exploring the idea of using open data sources versus, you know, the traditional way of actually running experiments with a handful of people and building our models. Like a crowdsourced experimentation process. Yeah. So the question was, are we crowdsourcing or are we inviting 30 people in our offices, pay them money and let them do things and use that data to train the device? So, of course, back in the days, I was super excited about the crowdsourcing. But the problem is the quality of the data. Of course, you get more data this way. More people can build more solutions. But And this is how healthcare is different from the rest, right? Even its healthcare is fundamentally different from even financial crashes, right? So if you have a blockchain type system where you're storing bitcoins or Ethereum, whatever you want, some sort of cryptocurrency, and the system fails, a lot of people lose a lot of money which is very sad, but it's acceptable. Whereas if your distributed ledger system is putting in bad data sets to your machine learning algorithm, and as a result, people are dying, I think that's way less acceptable, right? So in healthcare, you are actually giving feedback to people that can, in the end, result in death or result in the person living longer or better, well, you know, what, we, what I call well care. But the dark side of this is if done incorrectly, it would ensure, make sure that the person can get hurt, which is not physically, mentally, it's not acceptable. So in idea, in an ideal world where I would say that blockchain would make sense, but as is, I don't see a distributed network. I mean, the idea of distributed networks is quite fascinating from any computer scientist point of view, but I think that it's not the best practice given our current designing pathways that exist in the medical device industry to use open data sources because the amount of time you spend in actually getting the most useful data out of those open data sources and in the end you might even not even get the data you are looking for might actually add to the cost of the device and if built we don't know if it was the correct data. Yeah, it could accidentally introduce bias into the data that you 
didn't plan for because of the variability of lack of control of some of the data that's coming in. So I totally get it. Yes. I'm just trying to figure out ways that, you know, the tools that you're going to create and you have created are really powerful. And that information, obviously, you're already looking at it through your analytics to be able to share it with, I'm thinking about the doctors and the medical systems in the poorest countries. How do we go back to the democratizing that process, making sure that everyone across the world can get the highest quality medical care? What I'm thinking is hopefully that with the introduction of technology, and like you said, smartphones are ubiquitous. There's over two, two and a half billion of them around the world, right? Yeah. You know, how can we leverage that so someone in a poor country isn't suffering from poor well care simply because of where they were born? You know what I mean? I do, I do. And I, and I personally have a real big interest because that's where it all started. I grew up in India. I was, of course, not UNESCO poor, but I, I was also not quite from an affluent family. So I have seen friends of friends pass away because of lack of care. And it is the worst thing that someone could witness. On one hand, we're building this artificial intelligence powered cardiac surgery and other person that somebody could manage his diabetes and diet. And it's happening at the same time in two different continents. It's quite Quite unacceptable to me. But so I have given a lot of thought into this. However, you have to, one has to understand that taking a new technology to third world immediately, like jumping with uh, and trying to solve the problem, might actually hinder the commercialization process. So for example, new technology often needs a lot of quick iterative corrections, right? So the idea would be to actually first launch it in US and European markets, primarily the US market, use those markets markets and launch very specific target markets. And once we have enough of those launches done correctly, and then we could actually take some of the older technology that is a couple of years old, but has been tested. We know it works. We can then launch it at a lower cost at a third world country. And when you say we, I am referring not to my company, but I think that this is a strategy that should be taken by anyone who's in the medical device business, because otherwise they would be going to a third world economy where there are a lot of problems. And you don't want the fact that the device still needs to be tweaked and the manufacturing needs to be perfected to be one of those problems. Because in those economies, there are a lot of other implementational problems. So when you enter that economy, you should know that you have the device at the lowest possible price, that the device works, no problem, so that you can then only work on the implementational challenges. No, I agree. And, you know, the scary thing is that something like uh, heart disease, it's the number one killer in the world. There's probably like 30 some percent of the people that the deaths around the globe are based around heart disease. And things like an Apple Watch, the new version just came out with their EKG monitor. It's very powerful, but it's also inaccessible for a lot of people in terms of price. And so it's a shame that we would not be able to provide that more globally to people because of market costs, especially if it has that much value. I mean, I read an article that you wrote about it and how it is kind of a game changer in what it can do and how it can monitor and so it's really intriguing to see all of the innovative tech that's coming out to try to help people. And to, again, going back to what you said, you grew up in a poor area. How do we get that out there to everyone? But at the same time, make sure that it's quality and we introduce it first in areas where we can test it with a fixed population that we can measure it and then roll it out to everyone else. Obviously, it just takes time. Plus, you have to get approvals. I guess it can be frustrating at times as well on your end to try to get things out. 
it boils down to this, right? As long as the vision of any company, large or small, is to serve the greater good, eventually, it might take them two more years, they could land quite elegant technology solutions in the hand of anyone they want, right? Apple is probably not going to launch their high-end phone at a third world economy right off the bat. I mean, traditionally, I mean, and now they actually launch the same product throughout the world. But what I'm saying is that, however, in the end, the same phones, once the in a couple of years, when the price comes down to half or slightly lesser, they can be introduced to any economy they want. And that's the best thing. However, in medical device industry, traditionally, it has been quite big players, Medtronic and Philips and those kind of people who have then had a choice of either to keep their margins high, not doing that. Right. So as long as the corporations are willing to make lower margins, but still a little bit of profit, but delivering care to everyone, I think it's possible to change care pathways using the new technologies that are getting into market all the time. So it boils down to the choice that a board of directors makes as opposed to the challenges of actually launching the technology. Yeah, and I think it's going to become a, almost mandatory in a way with how the world is aging. The 60-year-old groups are going to probably double or triple and people living longer past their 80s is going to grow. And so having technologies such as the ones that you develop to help doctors be able to monitor all of these people that are either going to be in elder care or maybe just living at home. Because the goal is obviously to live longer and to live longer healthier. So you're not spending the last 20 years of your life in pain or in an elder care facility where you can't move. But if you can have a vigorous lifestyle past the 60 and 70 and 80 years, then it is going to be harder for doctors because I, I believe I read somewhere that there's a doctor shortage out there too. Yeah, so I actually have a Forbes article on this topic on how artificial intelligence is changing elderly care. And some of the points that I can remember is, one, as you correctly said, most elders have a whole set of problems that you never imagine as a young adult or as an adult, right? For example, you need to continuously monitor your vital parameters. Old people fall sick quite often right? And if the care is delivered to them fast enough, it can actually mean that their quality of life increases exponentially. Yes. Also, oftentimes what happens with old people is once they fall down or most of them have some sort of muscular or bone condition that makes them fall down. And once they have that fall, their health goes downstairs from there. So if we can ensure that that scenario does not happen, it already would make the lives of elderly geriatric patients exponentially better. And this is where technology could actually make a lot of impact by making those small changes. By those small changes powered by technology would largely affect the condition of care that is currently available to old people. But on the top of that, there are other things like voice-enabled assistance. They're more on the psychological things where most old people people are alone. So having a pill dispenser or having a, a Siri like chatbot talking to them could be quite nice. Yeah, because depression strikes people of every age, but to be old and alone and depressed, it's something that we would never want to look forward to as younger people. And so that we have to think about that. And yeah, I, I just called up your article actually, and it says, you know, people that are 60 years and older are going to double yeah. from 12% to 22%. And then people 80 years and older are going to quadruple. And this is all by 2030. And those numbers are unreal. And if we have a doctor shortage, and again, I'm just 
talking about the U.S. And well, those numbers are actually worldwide, but if you just focus on the U.S. for shortages of doctors, how are we going to address all that? And it seems to me that a mobile healthcare solution where I can remotely monitor and be alerted versus having to have you come into the office and schedule appointments all the time, it's going to free up the doctors. This is a question, if I might interrupt a little. I think the problem with technology in healthcare space are doctors are always scared that this technology is going to outdate them and they have learned something for 20 years of their career and this piece of software is doing this automatically and they're scared and they would not allow such a technology to be available. They would not, you know, vote for it. And we have to remember that whatever happens in the next 30, 40 years, doctors are still going to be the gatekeepers deciding which technology or what solutions are going to be implemented in healthcare pathways, right? So one of the things that we are doing as a company is trying to educate doctors in two ways. One, the idea that we have a lot of automation in, for example, in the coding industry, but that has actually helped create more coding jobs, right? In business, we have a lot of automation tools in the sales, marketing, but this have actually helped businesses grow and hire more people in those roles, right? So similarly, the same thing is going to happen for healthcare. Doctors are going to deliver more as an individual, and it's going to help us recruit more physicians in general, because people would realize that healthcare is not a privilege, but it's kind of something like a basic right. That's the first thing. So we are trying to integrate that idea in healthcare. The second thing is actually teaching doctors how to deal with technology. So because technology has changed rapidly, I think there has been quite a discrepancy in how technology is being made and how that is taught to physicians, right? So physicians are quite inept at looking into large chunks of data right? So when they're presented, they're very good at looking into what we call sparse data sets. So you have one ECG a month and physician can predict your heart condition looking at it. But what if you are taking an ECG of the patient every minute for one month, right? Now you have this 5,000 data points or that order of magnitude of data points and the physician doesn't know how to look at it. So we are actually building course materials that would help the doctor of the future to learn how to interpret the data, to actually get value out of these systems as opposed to just looking at a fancy graph and deciding that's not worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, one of the articles that you wrote talks about how an AI in the UK beat doctors in the diagnosis of heart disease, or predicting, I should say, predicting heart disease. Yeah. And I can see where there would be some fear from doctors. And you're right, there's going to be jobs that are lost, but there's also going to be jobs created. And I think it's an opportunity for doctors where AI has to become an indispensable tool for them. And I think over time, they'll find out that it is going to be an excellent companion for them so they don't have to weed through data or they don't have to worry about, oh, wow, did I read every article that came out that's been published on a particular topic where they can, you know, instead ask the AI who is constantly combing through the documentation and the articles and the lab results and studies that be able to help them out and then they can make decisions together. But you're right, it's really important for your team and people like you to make sure that we constantly educate them to not be afraid and that it's something that they should really, really lean on because people are already using IBM Watson to help with cancer diagnosis and screening. To me, it's just going to be indispensable. Even the World Health Organization is taking a serious look at how can they leverage AI across the globe. One has to, if I may add to this, what you're saying, and I completely agree with you, is you have to think about technology as a tool, right? It's not a competitor. It's not going to replace anyone. The moment healthcare providers and healthcare professionals, and it's not only doctors, right? It's all industries too. I mean, it crosses every boundary. 
yeah, they look at this as just another tool that can help them do their job better and are willing to learn this and treat it as a tool. I think this is going to exponentially change how we deliver care. And I mean, frankly, it's quite surprising that on one end, we have these type of IBM Watson type of product. Some of it is in practice doing all this amazing stuff. And on the other hand, people are dying out of dehydration. I know. Isn't that amazing? And it's all happening on two different pages of the same newspaper. And I think that what ubiquitous technology like telehealth, it's the space where we are working in now with some very big corporations, is what we're going to deliver is that gap is going to reduce. I mean, that's my point, right? I think that, yeah, it's great that we are able to detect some new disease faster. That's great. But what's really important is to ensure that everybody gets care in a similar range. And we can prevent deaths or illness from preventable diseases. You know, that's like you said, the people you've said before in a couple of the articles you've written, it's like there are people that are dying of things that are preventable and they're just not getting the care they need because they don't go to the doctor or they're not getting monitored correctly. These tools that you're building can help prevent some of that stuff and help educate people because even as you use the tools, you can, as you said, your tools can help tell people, hey, you need to push yourself a little harder to get the benefit out of this exercise. You know, it's that feedback, not just the measurement, but the feedback that you get will help you improve your lifestyle. And I mean, this is where we kind of fundamentally differentiate ourselves from a lot of the other traditional medical device industries is instead of just building tools that collect raw data and report it using some form of file systems or online to a doctor, we're building tools that are going to give insights directly to the patients. It doesn't mean it cuts out the doctor. It means the patients can act immediately based on some pre-well-understood pathways. The doctor could come in and help the patient choose what strategy they should choose for their particular condition. Yeah, and that's key. Like you said, it's another tool in the tool belt of the doctor to try to help their patients. And your tools help the patient get active feedback to make decisions right there in front of them, but also with the eye of the doctor on what they're doing as well. Yes. And we could very easily extend this, remember, to sports coaches, to nurses, to emergency caregivers, the whole spectrum of people that are involved in health. And I kind of insist that when we talk about healthcare, we don't talk of the doctor as the only medical caregiver. So we should probably, I strongly advocate that we use the term medical professional caregiver or something like that, where we are not excluding the other crucial components of how care is delivered. But also it has to be remembered that I strongly believe that these type of technology is going to democratize care by not only giving care across economic boundaries, but also it's going to democratize care by ensuring that doctors are not the only decision makers throughout the care delivery pathways to democratize who is taking the decision when. So for example, I believe a lot of GPs are going to be replaced by nurse practitioners because they would now be empowered with these tools. And GPs would now take on more complex tasks like specialized surgeries. I mean, they would still be power augmented by some other technology like AI, but that actually frees up the number of GPs we have in specialized cares. Yeah, you make an excellent point. I go back to the story of your grandmother, right? So can you envision a waiting room in an emergency room where as soon as you walk in, instead of filling out forms, you're immediately attached to a mobile monitor so they can automatically figure out, okay, who needs the most care quickly instead of waiting in that long line that you talked about with your grandmother? I mean, my one 
superpowers is perhaps imagining things, and I'm very good at this. So, so I would imagine that this care pathway starts long before the patients enter the emergency care facilities. I would imagine that when the patient, his heart is kind of going weird, he's at home cooking a meal for his children or his grandchildren or her grandchildren, whatever, the device already triggers an alert to the patient as well as the local caregiver. It doesn't mean it kind of calls the ambulance. It means it keeps people ready that, okay, something might happen. It also triggers the health insurance company that knows that, okay, my cost pathways have gone up because certain times of the year, certain events trigger certain things. Yes. And then the device waits. It keeps the hospital system alert that something might happen. So in case it happens, the hospital actually can send an ambulance in the quickest amount of time. And if nothing happens, it takes them through some other pathways where people want to ensure that heart palpitation was due to a localized stress. Maybe the person was really worried if he or she is cooking a great meal. It was just that. Or it was not. It was really a medical condition. And in that case, when something happens, the ambulance comes in. But when the person gets in the ambulance now, the caregiver does not have to put on another device. The device is constantly telling the caregiver how in the last couple of hours the patient's conditions have deteriorated. So the caregivers can now decide does this person needs emergency care? Do I need to give the patient the strong dose of anticoagulants that might actually harm the person or might save the person's life? And then when it goes into the emergency room, as you said, the same device is now telling the doctors that person has been given this type of strong drugs. The person is working, the body is kind of responding okay, but the doctor has the history of what's happening beforehand. So what I'm imagining and what we're implementing, I guess, is uh, end end care, where care is not a separate thing that you get when you're not well, but it's wellness care, right? It's a device that monitors your health and records everything that your body is experiencing and informs your caregivers such that they can take the best possible decision. Yeah, so it's a basically a, a continuous care system that follows you everywhere you go. And the analogies you gave are brilliant. And it actually has other benefits. So in a way, you could say health insurance rates should be able to decline for people who are willing to participate and use these tools because in theory, there's a lot more preventive medicine or preventive actions that could happen before real costs are driven up. And so there are a lot of secondary benefits to all the 24-hour monitoring of your healthcare, not just, hey, I'm going to keep you alive, but I'm also going to keep your bills down because we can stop things before they get out of hand. I mean, and I could add on to this. I believe that a lot of cost in healthcare, and I mean, I am quite fortunate to travel across the world. So I spend a lot of my time between New York and Ireland, but I also go back home every year. So I get to see a bit of Asia, at least a bit of Asia, Europe and US throughout the year. I also have connections in the Middle East where I work and Africa. So end to end, the cost of healthcare is at best repulsive, right? I mean, I cannot find a better word other than repulsive to describe how much healthcare costs in today's world. And this is because care is delivered only when it is an emergency. And by reducing the cost of care, we can not only make it more accessible, but we could also deliver better quality of care across economic boundaries. That means, for example, if you are a farmer in Southeast Asia and you're wearing one of these devices, and maybe the government even augments some of the price of these devices, right? Because it's a continuous monitoring device, it has some upfront cost. The government would actually save tons of more money than if the same farmer actually gets admitted in three to five years time in a hospital with a cardiac condition, right? And the farmer now lives 15 times more 
and lives maybe three times better life because they have this device. So that's the potential we're talking about, where health care is a word of the past, where well care is what we're looking at, where people are being monitored and everybody gets access to data. This is where your previous question actually comes back to my mind, is that now this device can actually share the data with multiple caregivers, right? As opposed to building a blockchain where everyone is sharing their data in one platform and you have tons and tons of data and nobody knows what to do with it. Think about democratizing data where the same device, when given the legal permission, could now share the data with a gym coach, as well as a doctor, as well as the nurse. That is the democratizing of data that will actually add value to the care pathways as we know it today. Yeah, it's amazing. And the fact that, you know, people who might have otherwise been afraid to leave their house or afraid to do anything might be able to have some freedom and flexibility because they know they're being monitored. They have that safety net. And I think that would be exciting for a lot of people that can finally have a life outside of being worried all the time. I mean, do we discuss that, okay, people would be really excited when they have food on their table? Yeah. Or yeah. will people be excited when they get to drink two liters of water a day? This is a basic human right, right? We might take all of these things for granted today in 2018. By we, I mean a lot of the human race. I'm still quite appalled to say that not all of human race still has safe drinking water and food as a guaranteed right, but a lot of us have, right? And all of these happened because a few thousand years ago, certain technology like fire, automatized farming, kicked in, right? And we now kind of assume that, oh, of course you'll get food on the table tonight. This is not something I'm worrying about right now. So similarly, I think the same thing can happen with healthcare. And we are actually discovering what fire did to farming. Technology AI is going to do to healthcare. It's going to democratize the very idea of how care is delivered to each and every one of us. I agree. And that's probably a good spot to wrap up our conversation. But doctor, you're doing the necessary work that needs to be done out there and you're helping a lot of people. And I really appreciate what it is you're doing. Can you tell everyone if they want to get more information about you or your company, how they can reach out to you or learn more? Yeah, we are always attending conferences and please follow us on our social media channel. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you are generally interested in what we do, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If there's a professional interest, you would like to know more about the capacity, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. We are always looking for feedback, user stories. So if you are one of the lucky people who have used our device, please let us know how you have felt and if there are anything we can do to make them better because each user comment is taken very seriously by our organization and we want to ensure that the same mistakes don't happen again. Or if you have any idea of how this could be used for something better, we'd be very happy to hear from you. And yeah, and thank you, Bob, for doing this podcast. And I think you are actually enabling a lot of people to voice their concerns about very important topics. So I think, yeah, people should owe you a big thanks as well. Now we want to start the conversation and get the ball rolling for sure. Thank you for your time, Doc. And I wish your company and you the best of luck. Thanks, Bob. Well, that was an interesting conversation, and I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Samuel. I hope you found it interesting too. We really do need to look at ways to democratize medicine to make it easier, to make it more accessible. And the concept of just being more active in monitoring our health, again, without getting too creepy and without worrying about privacy issues. I think it's important that we can look at these tools, and that's what they are, tools for doctors to help better monitor their patients, especially as we get older and as we live longer. But 
also for maybe some peace of mind on our end to not have to constantly worry about our health as we get older because we know someone's watching and taking care of us. Uh, I know that sounds a little creepy, but uh, I think it might end up working out in our benefit. I'm open to different opinions, of course. But as always, I thank you for joining us. I look forward to next week and uh, we'll see you then.